Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is the Other Life Podcast, where I talk with indie creators, digital hustlers, and unique internet personalities about how to escape from institutional conformity and succeed on the internet instead. To learn more about the Other Life Project, go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. And if you like what I'm doing, I just have one quick favor to ask. Please go and just leave a review in iTunes. It really helps others find the show, and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and a big shout out, especially to my patrons. I could not do this without you all. So thanks. And now, on to the show. All right. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. I am here with John David Ebert. John is teaching the latest course in my course catalog that I've been building out. The course will be on Carl Jung. And we are basically today, we're kind of celebrating that we just opened enrollment just a, a couple days ago. So this might be the first you're hearing it. The Young course is now open for enrollment. The very first discussion seminar is going to be uh, not this Saturday, but the following Saturday, February 20th. And yeah, it should be should be really good. We already have a good handful of people who've joined, but I know a lot of you out there have uh, maybe not yet heard about it, or you have you've heard about it, but you didn't know that enrollment is officially open. So we just wanted to hop on here one more time and tell you and let you know that it is open. So the other thing though that I wanted to do with this discussion is I've I've been receiving a lot of questions lately, kind of about how my courses work, what what to expect behind the scenes, what it looks like, how things how things operate. And it occurred to me that, yeah, there actually are a lot of people out there who don't have a good sense of that. So I thought it'd be fun also now that I've done, um, I think I've done five courses now in the past year or two, I've been working really hard on building systems and community structures to make these really effective and, and great, but I haven't actually talked too much about how it works or what to expect. So when I started getting a lot of questions about that, I figured, you know what, we should share a little bit behind the scenes with the world and, and let people know when they sign on to one of my courses, what exact what exactly are they getting? And maybe say a little bit more also about my larger kind of philosophy of education and where I think the world is going when it comes to internet-based, authentic, independent, you know, kind of free thinking uh, uh, education, essentially. And for John's part, we can learn a little bit more about how John sees kind of the nature of teaching Jung uh, in this kind of contemporary digital context. Because one of the things I've learned from going over John's material. So all of John's lectures are done. He did eight pre-recorded lectures. They're all already uh, integrated with the course curriculum and available to people who enroll. So you get those eight eight lecture videos as soon as you enroll in, in the course. And I've been going over them myself because I have them transcribed and all of this. And one of the things that I've really gotten from it, since I'm not a young scholar myself, but looking through John's materials and watching the videos, it, it's really come through to me how much Young himself was was quite a, was quite a renegade. His thought really did kind of overflow the boundaries of what was acceptable institutionally, and he was kind of constantly, in one way or another, getting into trouble uh, with with what we might just generally refer to as institutions, whether those be the institutions of psychiatry or or what have you. And I think that's really interesting to note because obviously the courses I've been building, this whole course catalog, I've done Leo Strauss, I've done George Bataille, I've done uh, Heidegger and Deleuze. Uh, with other colleagues, this this whole catalog involves thinkers who, in one way or another, kind of exceed the boundaries of institutions and really open on to this uh, radically independent, somewhat anti-institutional sphere of, of 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 truly free thought. So it's really interesting and cool to see that theme come out in your own uh, teachings on young uh, John. So I thought that could be an interesting 
uh, theme to explore as well. Learn a little bit about how you're thinking and how you're feeling, John, as you embark to do this eight week course uh, with me and my course catalog uh, for the first time. This is your first time participating in any of my courses. So yeah, I think that's basically the game plan folks is we wanna just tell you a little bit about a little bit more about my courses and specifically what to expect uh, when it comes to the Carl Jung course, as far as John sees it, uh, but also hopefully have a, a an enriching and and and, and rather uh, interesting discussion about the nature of contemporary you know intellectual life on the internet as we know it as well. So with that is a bit of an introduction. What do you, what do you think, John? I have a couple of questions for you, especially since you uh, bring out this idea about these anti institutional in individuals, mm. uh, and most of them were. I mean, Heidegger played the game in, through academe, but nonetheless. He certainly didn't participate in modernity. And both Heidegger, almost all the Germans, actually, the great Germans that, whose philosophies I like, uh, Heidegger, uh, Rudolf Steiner, uh, Carl Jung, Gene Gebser, almost all of them were anti-institutional uh, and anti-modernity. Uh, uh, they were very much um, in opposition to the world of modernity, which they saw, Oswald Spengler, of course, classically, which they saw as in total decline. What interests me about your career, which is very rare, uh, and I remember that we talked about this uh, a year or two ago when we did when I was first on your podcast. And it fascinates me that you you did get all the way up. You got a Ph.D. and then you decide to leave. <laughs> I'm curious about the motivations and, and how and why that that happened. Yeah, I'm happy to kind of go over the, the basics of that motivation real quick before I do that. And thank you for asking yeah. uh, for people who are just tuning in or maybe you're listening to this a few hours later on the podcast feed. There are links in the show notes both on YouTube and on the podcast feed. So even if you're just curious about the syllabus or the reading list for this eight week course that, that John is teaching on Carl Jung, uh, you can just get that for free. So just check the show notes. Uh, there's a link to the course where you can get all of the details about the course, when it starts, how it runs, what to expect, what you get and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, there's a link in the show notes, so check that out. Uh, but also, like I said, even if you're not interested in taking a full intensive eight week course right now, that's completely fine. We made a really nice and logically sequenced curated reading list that you can use for your own study as well. So feel free to just grab that even if you're not interested in taking the course. And and last but not least, we're also doing a private Q&A, a little private meetup on Thursday. So if you're curious about maybe taking the course, but you're not sure what the vibe is going to be like, or you're not sure what it whether it's for you or not, uh, feel free to sign up for the, the private Q&A meetup on Thursday. There's also a link in the show notes and you can just come out, come out. It'll be private. You can hang out with John and I and just ask us directly anything you want to know about how the course works or what to expect. And we can help you decide whether it's right for you or not. Because frankly, we honestly don't want you to join unless it's really what you want and what you expect. And you know, we only want you to, to join if we know for sure that you're going to get a lot of value out of it. And if you're not the right fit for it, then trust me, we're as, uh, you know, we, we we're as eager as you are to, to make sure you don't, you know, pay for something or join something that is actually not going to work well for you. That wouldn't, you know, I don't want that. So yeah, you can just come to the Q and A on Thursday and ask us anything you want. Kind of sniff us out, sniff out the vibe of what a, a what of what one of our seminars will feel like. And yeah, so that's enough for now. The, all those links are in the show notes. And so, John, you were asking me about how, when I decided to leave academia. I mean, the way I boiled this down is very simple. From the time that I decided to pursue the intellectual life as a vocation, I was about you know nineteen years old, roughly, probably right around there is when I was really, you know, had that kind of deep calling as you have when, when you're a young man and, and you, you feel you feel that calling of what, what you want your life to be about. It, for me, it was very clear and emphatic that I wanted to pursue a, a life dedicated to, to seeking the truth uh, in, in what, whatever way was required of me. It's a kind of categorical calling where it's like, 
that's just what I felt compelled to do. And so I decided to pursue a career as a professor because that was at the time uh, that it just seemed like the most natural way to pursue that calling. And I think for a lot of history, it, it probably was, you know, being a professor was kind of the most attractive uh, perch in life that you could have to, to be relatively insulated from the market and have this time and space with income and, and a bit of social status and influence as well to just focus on doing pure research and, and communicating the, the findings of your, of your truth seeking work. Uh, so that's why I got into academia as, as a means to that end, as a means to that vocation or that calling that, that, that I, I, I felt very strongly uh, w when I came of age. And really, to make a long story short, the reason I quit academia was just because it became increasingly clear and then at a certain point, just undeniable that that was no longer a means to the end that I was seeking, basically. And I kind of realized at a certain point, there is no degree of success in academia, there is no degree of me paying my dues where finally true intellectual freedom is going to arise and I'm going to finally be able to say and think whatever I want. There, there was just no amount of paying my dues. There was no amount of success so you felt, that, you felt that was so. ever going to bring that. And so once I realized, once I realized that it would never come, the choice was clear and I just had to go, I had to go, I had to, I had to explore the, the outside. And so, uh, so you felt stifled. You, you felt like the, the, the atmosphere did not and the reason this interests me is because in my own career, I made the decision very early on uh, in academe not to even go for a master's, uh, let alone a PhD. So I cut, I cut, I was disillusioned right after I got out of my uh, undergrad studies as an English major at Arizona State, um, and I was discovering Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and Oswald Spengler, all these guys, and suddenly the whole world opened up to me, and I realized this is the big picture and this is what I want, and I have a feeling that going through uh, to get an MA um, is going to be a, a constriction, a, a process of, of constriction, 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 whereas my horizons were widening and widening and widening. So I just knew uh, that I was going to be in, a, in for a big struggle if I decided to to go and, and do it. So this is what interests me about uh, why you left. You, you just felt creatively, intellectually stifled by the, the climate. Was it a political thing or... I'm just curious. Well, you know what's funny is I think from the beginning, I always had the same intuition that you just described. I always knew getting into academia, I always knew that it would be constraining and stifling to some degree, but I calculated it to be worth the, the cost. I considered, okay, I'm going to constrain myself and I'll play by the rules and I'll pay my dues, but I'm going to climb the ladder and then I'm going to get that coveted tenure job and then I'm going to have intellectual freedom and a salary and all the good things that you want out of academia, but then I'm going to cut loose. You know, that was, that was always my attitude. And that's frankly the, that is kind of the myth. That is the selling point really that mm -hmm. a lot of people want the professor gig for is the idea that, yeah, of course you are constrained for quite a while, but if you climb the ranks and you get tenure, then you can be the completely free truth seeking wild man you you've always aspired to be. I really believed that. I, I think I, I was a bit naive and I took that very seriously. I took that very literally. And I mean, that's pretty much what I did. Like I was very, very well behaved. And a very disciplined, uh, normal, traditional academic specialist uh, got a tenured job. And then as soon as I got tenure and I had prestigious publications, I had felt, okay, I finally arrived. And I was at that point, I decided very self-consciously, okay, now I'm going to start cutting loose and doing whatever I want and really seeking the, the truth as, as freely, but also just as creatively as possible. It's not even that I was hitting like political tripwires exactly. It's more actually, and this, I think people find this quite surprising and interesting. It's 
it's to me that the, the, the radical intellectual life, the true intellectual life requires you to also just be a little weird in certain ways that doesn't play well with the contemporary institutionalized, professionalized, bureaucratized formats. So it's like, I wasn't really getting in trouble for saying politically problematic things. Although there's a little bit of that. It was more, it was more just, Justin is a little weird and he's doing weird things that we don't do within these institutions. So to give you an example, like the very first thing I ever got reprimanded for, it wasn't anything I said political or anything like that. It was because I was on, I went to Amsterdam with my wife for a, a little weekend getaway. And as you do in Amsterdam, we ate uh, psychedelic mushrooms and had a lovely weekend. Um, and, but one of the things we did was when I was, I was tripping on mushrooms and I made like a little video on Instagram of myself, uh, tripping on mushrooms. I just basically was talking into the camera, uh, relating some of my, you know, uh, psychedelic, uh, insights and intuitions. It was just funny and, and creative and it was really just goofing around, but I posted that to the internet because in Amsterdam, it's like pretty much legal. So it's my mind, there's literally nothing impeachable about that. And that was one of the first things I got reprimanded for. Um, you know, basically they tried to get, they tried to get me to take that video down. And I was like, no, absolutely not. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. There's, there's you literally, you can't point to anything even bad about it. It's not even illegal there. And for what it's worth, frankly, I think it's a beautiful video. I was having, I was actually saying quite interesting things and having a lovely time with my wife. I actually quite like that video. Thank you very much. And that yeah. was the beginning of the end, honestly. That that's that yeah. that's when I first had an intuition that, huh, maybe this isn't going to be the the life of true freedom and creativity that I thought I was working towards. Yeah, and I was last year. I was invited out to Lafayette College by a, pro a professor there, about about your age, in mid thirties, very nice guy, um, who had seen all of my videos on Oswald Spengler, uh, who isn't popular in academe, and so he invited me out there, um, and he was just on the threshold of getting tenure. Um, so he was right on the threshold where he was in a very precarious situation. He had to be careful what he did because he, he had started this Mills, what he called the Mills Studies program for inviting unusual thinkers who think outside the academic box uh, to come in and give lectures on various uh, topics. And so he was start, he was rocking the boat there with that, uh, very precarious. And then so I did my lecture. That went over fine. I posted that. Uh, no objections to that. But the next morning, we did an interview uh, together uh, and we both posted that. Then he got in trouble for the interview because somewhere in the interview, and I don't remember what he said, but he made a, just a slightly off color remark about race and culture and uh, something about how race is bound to locality. or It was totally innocent. I, I didn't see anything the least bit wrong with it. Uh, but as soon as he posted it uh, a few days later, uh, he contacted me and said, take that video down right now. I'm getting... Uh, a lot of flack for that re remark I made. It was just one remark in a two-hour conversation. And uh, he got in hot water and his tenure was in jeopardy. And I took my video down, he took his down, and that was that. So I don't know exactly what ha what the outcome of it was, but it's a classic example of the same thing you're talking about, about the restrictions on your creative freedom. It's really, there are these tripwires, it seems, and if you set them off, Wow, you're, it's the whole trajectory of your career is in jeopardy now. Yeah, um, there's a so ton of tripwires, and a lot of them are not even political. It's just all types of little things you're not supposed to talk about. And as a, if you're truly committed to the intellectual life, and your goal in life is to seek the truth as radically as possible without you know selling out to various you know uh, uh, forms of of bias and capture that are, that are so common today, then basically it's it's just impossible to 
it's impossible. It's an impossible situation. And yet at the very same time, and this is what's so crazy, we now have all of the technology required to recreate high level professional quality, academic level, PhD level, extremely sophisticated intellectual communities and learning and teaching experiences and, and co-production experiences where there is absolutely no authority and there are, we can do it completely all by ourselves. And this is what I've been doing with the courses. And, and frankly, I mean, I really don't want to sound like I'm, I'm tooting my own horn, but the truth is I haven't actually talked about my courses very much in public since I started doing them because I've been working so hard on building them. I quit academia about two years ago and I've, I've been working pretty much full time building the courses, but also the intellectual, the, the kind of infrastructure and the community for the intellectual networking and dialogue that takes place outside of the courses or between the courses, which is the indie thinkers community and network forum, basically. And, and, COVID, and so, has, COVID has kind of helped us along to that direction anyway. It seems to be the wave of the future because everything now is going through Zoom and online and online this, online that. So it does seem like you came into it at exactly the right time, a very exactly. A very exactly. So, uh, totally. yeah. it was, you're absolutely right. It, that, that, that definitely dovetailed well with what I was already doing. Um, but now what I want to what I want to tell people a little bit more about is like what it looks like and feels like, and sounds like behind the scenes of one of these courses. Like when you join one, uh, what, what it, what it's like basically. And because I haven't talked about this very much, I'm only now just kind of coming up for air. I've done five courses now. I think, five. as I said, I did, I did Leo Strauss with Michael Millerman. That's ongoing right now. I did Deleuze and Heidegger with my colleague, Johannes Niederhauser. I did Bataille with Nina Power. And over the course of these courses, we've had more than 100 students come in. Actually, I think more than 200, somewhere somewhere between 200 and 300 students, I think, in the ballpark uh, come through these courses. And every every course had good reviews. And one of the things that's most interesting, I think, to people that they don't realize is sometimes when people hear, oh, Justin Murphy's building his own online philosophy courses, they think that it's going to be a bunch of edgelords. And one of the things that, you know, it's going to be a bunch of like 4chan people who want to like talk about evil ideas or something like that. Oh, and what, right. one of the most, yeah. one, of the, one of the coolest things about it that, that has been really, you know, awesome is that it's very, very smart people from all walks of life who are not even political, there's not even any political commonality. It's not like neo-reactionaries. It's not leftists. It's genuinely just very open-minded people who want, they need genuine, authentic, and free-spirited intellectual community. That's all they want. They want to think clearly and freely and creatively with other smart people who want to think clearly and freely and creatively. That's literally all they want. And frankly, it's all I'm offering because I, I'm not even playing the game of credentials. I'm not, I'm not actually giving people anything other than a, a, a well-curated, challenging reading list, plus an expert instructor, plus structures for meeting other intelligent, independently-minded people, and then a schedule of intensive group discussions where they're going to be able to pursue their own lines of interest and their own research agendas, their own curiosities and what they're bringing to the table. They're going to be able to do that in a structured and intensive way over the course of eight weeks. Like I, all I'm really providing is the structures and that, and that system and a place for those people to build their relationships with others over time. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of not, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the people who come through. It's like really, really high quality people. And every time we do a course, it's a little bit more valuable than the last time because there's in the community, we have all the people who previously took the course. So to this day, we have people like from one of my first courses 
they are still doing their own autonomous reading group on a regular basis. Those are relationships that people are taking with them for the long term. So yeah, it's just, I, I'm so excited to start sharing with people what is what it's really like and what's really emerging from all of this. Because like I said, over the past two years, I've just been working nonstop and I, I've hardly got to tell people how cool it is. So yeah, if people have questions this, about how it works, I'd love to answer them. Or John, what do you think? Do you see this then? Are, are you forming your own school? Uh, is that what this is? Or, or You know, I have a theory that I think a lot of people are thinking in the wrong framework. Like a lot of people are thinking, you know, how can you replace academia or how can you build the new institution that's going to replace academia? And honestly, I don't think, so I don't really think of myself as building a school, although I guess that is what I'm doing in some sense. Mm -hmm. And the reason I don't think about building a school or I don't think about it in those terms is that it's mostly mature, smart, interesting people who have their own project of one kind or another. And so I almost think the teacher student framing is not the right one. I, I mean, in some sense, uh, John, you know, you're, you're a young scholar. You've been reading and studying Jung for more than, more than 20 years now. And you, your erudition when it comes to the topic at hand is going to far surpass mostly everyone in the course. But we also have people who join the courses who are, they have, sometimes they have PhDs. I mean, it, it's really diverse. Sometimes it's undergraduate students. Sometimes it's people who are already quite experts in the, in the topic at hand, but they just want to be able to talk to other people who are interested in it in an authentic and truly free way. So it's something that's actually much, I think more interesting and more cool than a quote unquote school. Okay. Cause it's not primarily that didactic teacher student phenomenon. Although of course we always have an expert who's the guaranteed kind of leader who can guarantee that everyone is going to learn something for sure. Hopefully learn a lot. Um, but even in cases where people already know a lot, it's some, it's something, it's something greater than a teacher student relationship. It's more like a, a community of independent intellectuals who are working on particular topics at the same time and want to work on those together. And of course, there's always a little bit of a teacher student dynamic across the people who know more towards the people who know less, but it, it, I think of it more as a, as a community for independent intellectuals is what I'm building, I think. So it, it sort of started then as a, uh, a, like a branch coming out of your Other Life podcast. Uh, yeah. Way is, it's yeah. And a, yeah, that's right. So Other Life is kind of what I call my personal media company. That's where I do all of my publishing. And I, that's where I develop my own ideas and my own theories. And I, and I put out content of different kinds, whether it's my newsletter or, you know, my videos or my podcast. That's kind of my personal brand, if you will, of, of the stuff that I'm interested in. But IndieThinkers.org, I, I purposely built it as a separate brand because I don't want it to be about me. It's not about me. It's, it's something designed to be much larger and to transcend me and to scale way beyond me. So it has nothing to do with like Justin Murphy's weird theories or whatever. It's, it's more I'm trying to build the preeminent place or network for all those people out there who are called by the intellectual life. They know they, they have a deep drive to pursue truths, whether that be in philosophy or science or art, and they just don't want to do it within any of the currently prevailing institutions. And they want to do it freely. They want to do it autonomously. And they want to do it with a kind of radical free speaking attitude. And they want to do it with other people who have a safe, who have the same vision of what the intellectual life involves. And I'm just basically creating the structures that put them together. So the courses are one aspect of that that give people an opportunity to really rally around a particular set of topics or themes and focus on that for eight months, eight weeks at a time. But then the Indie Thinkers community more generally has a bunch of other features which are really just there to support anyone working on their own independent intellectual work over time. So I've designed 
I've designed the courses and IndieThinkers.org to to complement each other over the longer term. And uh, so what are some of the other intellectuals that you might be thinking about exploring in the future? Because I know you mentioned the possibility of us doing uh, a course on Marshall McLuhan, which is very- That'd be a good one, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's really exciting. That, that's someone else that I also know very, very well uh, and would love to be uh, involved in that with you. Um, so Marshall McLuhan, like who, who else do you think you would be interested in exploring? I wonder if you, how you see the future of this? Absolutely. Well, what I am thinking more about at the moment is I want to go more towards the ancient canon as well. So uh, re re yeah, recently we've been doing 20th century thinkers that I think align very well with my own values and my own, my own vision of the intellectual life. As I was saying before, mostly radical anti-institutional outsiders or people who maybe they weren't anti-institutional outsiders themselves, but their thought stands strongly against the contemporary opinions of the day. Those are the types of people that I'm generally focusing on right now, because I, I think that's what the world needs right now. And that's what people want the most right now, myself included. But what I want to do next is I want to start adding on courses, uh, Plato, Aristotle, yes. the, church, the church fathers, you know, I, I want to do Plato and Maybe yeah. uh, St. Augustine's City of God or, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and in the long run, my dream would be to have the whole canon on lockdown. I mean, yeah. I, I think I think truly liberal arts oriented education is so, so hard to come by, even at elite universities that focus on the great books, simply because the universities are so captured by uh, political ideologies and political correctness and all of that. You know, my 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 whole vision in the long term is I would like to basically build a set of courses that covers the entire history of intellectual life in the most truly independent and free thinking, free spirited way possible that currently you just can't find at any institution, even the, the finest institution. It'd be nice to have a kind of a history of philosophy, the whole going through this, the whole canon. Uh, this is a very exciting thing you've stumbled on here, uh, Justin. Uh, it's great. I think you have a lot of uh, potentialities here to work with. Yeah, well, thank you. I still have a lot of work to do. Obviously, this is the kind of long-term vision, but I mean, thank you for getting on board and, and, and chipping in your piece of it. Absolutely. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about the Young Course in particular. Sure, yeah. And for people who are just tuning in now, there are links in the show notes. If you want the reading list, you can check that out. And I highly recommend that you do. And also folks, if people have questions, they can ask in the chat. Uh, and if they're a good question, I, I might be able to um, address it. So for instance, uh, John Schultz Barnes asked, are you going to talk about psychological types? And the answer is absolutely. That's one of the whole weeks uh, yep. that we do. I think it's the third or fourth week. John has uh, designated an entire week to reading and and discussing that in the in the weekly seminar for that week. So the short answer to that is yes. And if people have other questions, uh, be, if they're simple, we're, we'll be happy to address them now. Um, but yeah, John, maybe you could say a brief word about sure. how, how you're thinking about you know, what in your mind is the ideal format or ideal vibe or atmosphere that you would like to create as a teacher who's coming onto my course catalog to do an eight week discussion series? Like, how do you think about your values and what you try to create as, you know, the, the leader or facilitator of a, of an intellectual discussion around someone like Carl Jung? Well, uh, first of all, knowing him well and going in depth, uh, and going into, um, I like the idea of there being no boundaries where we can explore his personal life, uh, which is interesting as well. And not just the, the Freud-Jung issue that we have been talking about where Jung knew about uh, Freud sleeping with his wife's sister, but also the fact that Jung himself, too, uh, had a lifelong mistress. 
So he was basically in a lifelong menage a trois with Tony Wolf, uh, who was his mistress, basically his second wife, just not legally, and uh, Emma, uh, his main wife. Uh, and the two women were okay with the, the, the situation. Uh, that's all, <laughs> that's quite out of the ordinary. And I suspect that a lot of people don't know that about Herr Jung. You know, there's this polygamous side to him as well. Uh, so he himself was guilty of a menage de trois. And uh, so I just think all of that is interesting to explore because Jung was absolutely fearless. He really was a rebel, as you say. Uh, he was trying to make everything work within the medical community. Uh, he came out of you know medicine, then into psychiatry, uh, then psych evolved one of the you know, broadest, most interesting theories of psychology because he had, and I think the main reason is because he had such a strong background in philosophy, uh, especially German philosophy, which he had studied very thoroughly and knew very well, uh, whereas Freud did not. Freud did not know philosophy. Uh, Freud was strictly, he, he, history was a strong area of Freud's, um, other than the medical community. Uh, so Jung brought this knowledge of philosophy together with the scientific community of the, the medical community and put them together in a very startling way. But he managed to be a rebel and work within the constraints of a respectable career. Uh, at an early point, he was successful enough at the Bergolzi uh, Psychiatric Institution to simply leave them and go into private practice, which is almost like the equivalent of what you're doing. In a certain sense, you were leaving academia and going into private practice. That is exactly what Jung did uh, because he had enough patience that he knew uh, it was going to work. And it did work. He was very wealthy, actually. Uh, it's had no money problems in his life whatsoever. Uh, so all of this is fascinating. So That is interesting. I, I don't want to just do a stale. I've heard many Jungian uh, experts do very stale uh, expositions of the theory of the archetypes and the collective unconscious. And it just gets ad nauseum. Uh, I want to see the full picture because I think the man... And his personal life is just as interesting as the ideas. And it's, it's a multifaceted sort of like hyperdimensional complex structure uh, that I want to get into and explore all these different facets of him. So Yeah, that's that's, fasc that's, that's fascinating. And I, I think that sounds very attractive. I, I'm surprised that he was rich. I didn't know that. That's an interesting little tidbit. Is that because... Is that because of the fame that he had in his life got him a lot of private clients who paid well, it, was, a lot? it was all the, the private patients that he picked up from the Bergolzi Institution uh, and realized he had a very strong income because as soon as he left, he built his own house. So he already had wealth. He bought a big piece of property uh, in near Bollingen uh, and then eventually built his own tower there uh, on a little inlet overlooking the lake. Um, so the money came from you know, from Bergolzi and being such a successful psychiatrist there, people would seek him out. Word spread and they knew how good he was with treating people with mental illnesses because Jung had an ability. He was very uh, empathetic to his patients. He wasn't uh, a very a cold. He didn't have uh, a bad, you know, a bad bedside manner. Uh, he was very compassionate with them and he would look at uh, patients and their uh, strangenesses uh, that other doctors would ignore. For example, there was a woman there uh, who was just written off as, as, you know, on that case, basically, there's nothing we can do with her. And she was always going around making these motions in the air like this, you know, just making these sort of motions. And the, the young got curious about it. And he asked about her personal life. And he said, um, so where do you think those motions come from? What kind of what happened in your life? And she said she had a lover who was a shoemaker uh, and it turned bad. Um, he either died or, you know, dumped her or whatever happened. And it just broke her heart. So that he found out as she was in the institution, this was the way she had making these dressing, like putting laces through a shoe uh, of keeping him the memory of him alive. 
and suddenly she didn't seem quite so crazy to him anymore anymore so he had this ability to empathize with his patients that the other doctors just did not have uh and people respond to that they compassion a compassionate you know i've been to many different therapists for different reasons at different points in my life and uh most of them are, <laughs> they're not uh, too sympathetic or empathetic. And a lot of them are very cold. It's very difficult to find a, a good psychiatrist who is empathetic as well as expert at handling things like dreams, which was another one of his amazing skills that to this day, I've never found anyone else who can understand dream symbolism the way he could do it. He could take any dream and then just say, aha. And he would always make sure that was part of his therapy uh, that you kept recounting your dreams to him. Every time you saw him, like if you saw him once a week, you come back the next week, he wants you to tell him all the dreams that you can remember from that week. And then he'll work with them. That's another extraordinarily rare, rare skill among psychiatrists. I've never even encountered it uh, in my own personal life. So um, just an absolutely fascinating man. Yeah, that that is absolutely fascinating. You know, you're making me realize, I just remembered, I had a dream last week where I got onto a... I, I, I stepped onto a cruise ship and I was just investigating the cruise ship. Like someone was showing me around the interior of the cruise ship. And the idea was I was just looking at it. I was just seeing what the inside of the cruise ship was like. And then I, I realized it started taking off and it was already set at sea. And there was no way that I could get the captain to turn back. And I had, it was actually more of a nightmare because I had a kind of sudden intuition I'm stuck on this cruise ship and I'm going away from the land and I'm never going back and it's out of my control. And yeah. I, and I, and I woke up with a yell. Yeah. It sounds like yeah, your career is in motion. You're this is, is your career. You've started it and you've set something in motion that you cannot stop. Uh, so when you make certain threshold changes in life and you cross a certain threshold, uh, sometimes there's an irreversibility about that decision and you have to follow through with the consequences of it. So hence the fear. Uh, it's, it's a bit anxious. <laughs> uh, you're, you're a bit anxious about what's going on, but nonetheless, the, the ship is, has set sail. So you're off and going. I that's think a, it's that's an interesting interpretation. I didn't even think of that, but yeah. when you say it, it does make some sense, doesn't it? So, you know, I think one of the things that Jung is known for, or maybe not, but the way that I read Jung and mostly this is through Deleuze is that Jung is really interested in helping people or his model of psychotherapy is really a matter of connecting people with the creative aspect of weaving their own narrative in a way. I don't know how you would put it, but that that's something that, that I, I feel like I see. And I'm no Jung scholar, but again, this is mostly through Deleuze. There is, there is this kind of irreducibly creative and autonomous compo component to to one's, to one's own life, to one's mental health, where one has to kind of take one's experiences, one's traumas, wh whatever one's baggage is, whatever is imposed on one and one's, you know, dreams and nightmares or whatever and feelings and, and whatever it might be. And one has to be able to process all of that in a way that isn't just interpretive. Like you're not just, it's not just like you're interpreting your dream to, you know, find some specific hidden truth that you have to be subservient to, but it's more like you're taking these materials and you have to co-create their meaning in a way that is functionally and, and, and effectively uh, healthy and, and appropriate for you. And that that's a kind of irreducibly creative process. That That's something that I see as one of the most essential, interesting and attractive aspects of young. Is that fair to say, or how, yeah, no, what would you say about that? No, you're right, because Jung uh, has this idea that our dreams actually, if you keep uh, like a dream journal, I've done this off and on through my life, 
uh, you keep a dream journal and just start it. And number one, you'll notice one thing uh, immediately, like within a few days, which is that a lot of people can't remember their dreams or just in a vague way, but the actual act of writing them down not only sharpens the memory of the dream you're writing down, but it will uh, aid your recall for your dreams as you go along. You'll, you'll start to, they'll become more and more vivid because you're paying attention to them and your unconscious then is actually, the unconscious is like an, uh, like an animal. You know, it's, it's got its own autonomy. It's got its own instincts uh, and it responds to attention just as pets do, for instance. And then uh, it, things start getting more and more vivid. Uh, so that's one thing you notice. The other thing that you notice over time, if you, let's say you do this over a year, um, many times if you keep dreams, then go back a year later that, that were totally enigmatic to you, go back and read them and they will be clear. They'll be like, oh, the dream was talking about what was going on then that later I did this thing. Uh, so they'll become clear because number one, they have intuitions of your future within them, lots of intuitions of your future. And number two, they weave together like a tapestry, uh, like say um, a very complicated Turkish rug or something where the threads are very complicated uh, as they're interwoven and the individual threads, if you look at them, you can see them, but you have to step back from the rug in order to see the beautiful uh, mandala or geometrical shape that it's forming. And this is what your dreams are doing with your life as a narrative. And so there is a narrative that comes out of these dreams that will guide you. It's like an internal compass that we have uh, that is meant to guide us through intuitions about, oh, that dream said this, maybe I better take that seriously and do that. Um, so there, it's a dialogue. So uh, it's very important to pay attention to dreams and they do tell a life story over time. This is why uh, we'll be looking at in the course, uh, in the class called um, Alchemy and Dreams, uh, Individual Dream Symbolism in Relation to Alchemy, which is a paper that Jung wrote uh, from the dreams of Wolfgang Pauli, who was a, a quantum physicist uh, at the time who won the Nobel Prize, um, a very important quantum physicist who was having a very difficult time with his life. He was a drunk. He was going to bars and getting into fights. He had trouble with women. He was womanizing, going through one woman after the next, could not find a stable relationship. It was just a wreck. Uh, so then he went to Jung, uh, and Jung specifically referred him to a female psychoanalyst, uh, psychoanalyst uh, pupil of his, uh, because he thought that it would be good for him to talk to a woman, because a woman psychoanalyst, Jung believes, uh, can nurture a man's thoughts. There, there can be a nurturing growth aspect to it. And he thought that that was what Polly needed. He needed to, to earn the trust of a woman and vice versa uh, and tell him, you know, the, tell her the most private things going on with him. And the other thing is that Jung specifically instructed her to have him write his dreams down because Jung knew that uh, being a genius, there, there might be some interesting things going on in there. So he did. And over a period of about, uh, let's say a year, maybe a year and a half or so, maybe two full years, um, the, the woman just kept sending Young uh, Polly's dreams. So Young wasn't analyzing him at first for a while. He did later go and specifically see Young. Um, so then he collected all the dreams, and uh, there's something like over 400 of them that uh, he set aside and then took uh, about 50 of those uh, and selected them so you could see the story over the time of Polly's life and what the dreams were telling him. Um, and so we're, we're going to explore that because I think it's a very concrete example of how dreams weave a story over time and guide you along if you, if you dialogue with them and listen to them. So that'll be an exciting, that's probably my most favorite thing that Jung ever did was his analysis of these dreams. And it's an absolute masterpiece of his writing that will be found in the portable Jung. And, uh, it doesn't say in the portable Jung that this is poly because at the time, uh, because of doctor-patient confidentiality, Young wasn't allowed to say who this was. 
Um, but later it was found out who it was. And recently uh, all the dreams were republished uh, in a seminar that he gave in uh, New York. And uh, I read through those also, which is uh, more interesting because he takes the same dreams as in the shorter paper, even though the paper itself is pretty long, uh, and analyzes them in much greater detail. So I went back and forth between the two uh, and got a much better and larger picture of the interpretations of the dreams. So that will be a, a very exciting class, I guarantee it. That's fantastic. Yeah, that sounds incredibly intriguing. I look forward to, to listening to you riff on that. So I have another question here from someone who wants to know when they enroll in the Carl Jung course, what is the community slash social network that they get access to? So I can speak to this a little bit to give people a better sense of what of what they can expect. So every time I do a course and I've done like five now, like I said, Leo Strauss, Heidegger, Deleuze, a couple, a couple others, um, we put all of the participants in the course in a larger social network slash private community forum space, which is hosted on IndieThinkers.org plus all of the other people who are just members of IndieThinkers.org. So everyone in there, all the members of IndieThinkers.org are either lecturers from my previous course. So it's people like, you know, Nina Power, um, Michael Millerman, John David Ebert, and a bunch of other people like that, people who are, you know, their own independent intellectuals working on their own research work over time, whose names you might recognize. But then it's also all the other people who have taken the courses. And this, this is, it's all really high quality people because here's the thing, folks, because the courses, look, they're not cheap. And I've always been very honest about that. It's an intense, demanding thing that you should only really do if you're very serious about putting in the work and getting a very rewarding, uh, transformative experience out of it. So they're not cheap because it is a high value experience. And also because I am kind of trying to scare away people who are not serious. But the good thing about this is all of the people who are in the network and the community are really smart, serious people. So we have people who are you know, founders or investors or people working at, you know, big tech companies all the way down to people who um, have PhDs or people who are adjunct professors at universities or people who are just really precocious, ambitious undergrads or, or whatever the case might be. The point is what everyone has in common is that they are really deeply committed to a long-term authentic intellectual life. And that's that being the common denominator, it creates for really high quality opportunities and relationships. So like we have, I can think, I, I don't want to call them out and uh, embarrass them, but we have two people who uh, they met in one of my courses and they're now dating. Okay. Oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They're now dating. I'm, I'm very, very proud of that one. And, <laughs> and mind you, these are two people from two different countries. Okay. Wow. Who met in one of my previous courses, they hit it off, started messaging. I guess their, their friendship or relationship got deeper and they're now dating and, and they actually fly to see each other. Um, I don't know. I, I, the last I heard, they flew to see each other. Where it's gone, I don't know. But um, that's the kind of stuff that is emerging from these courses. So I'm just incredibly like excited and, and proud to share these types of things. The other thing I want to tell people is I'll, because everyone in the Indie Thinkers Network is working on their own personal long-term in intellectual work, the collaborations are really kicking off. So people are doing each other's podcasts. People are finding their initial readers or subscribers for their blog or their newsletter. And people are actually engaging each other. Like I would not be like the reason I haven't been talking about the courses or indie thinkers very much over the past few years is because I've been building them. And I don't like to hype things unless the results are really there, unless I can point to them. That, that's why you haven't heard too much about this stuff on my public content channels. But only only in the past like few months, really the past like four or five months, I can say as a fact, it's happening. Like people are doing each other's podcasts. People are engaging with each other's blogs. And I'm just incredibly proud of that. And I'm super excited to share with people that like, if you, I can honestly represent this 
these products and, and this community because it's really working. It's really doing what it set out to do. And it's not because of me. I just built the structures. It's because of the quality of the people who join and they, they give their best effort and they want to, they want to engage with others and they want to be engaged by others who are smart and authentically committed to like long-term intellectual life. And yeah, so that's, that's just like a little vignette or a few vignettes about what's going on inside of the indie thinkers community. And I would not be saying that if, it wasn't like, it's not speculative. I'm not saying I hope this happens. It's like already happening. And that's why I'm coming up for air to tell you folks, like it's, this is legit. What I'm building is really brewing and it's badass. And people are really getting a ton of value out of it. I mean, people are paying $450 a year to be a member of Indie Thinkers. So it's legit. Uh, people who sign up to the courses though, they get access to the network for free. So that that's how I'm, how I'm kind of arranging that. So I was going to say this too, throw this out there. If you're on, if you're on the fence, uh, if you're interested, maybe vaguely, or you're not sure, and you're on the fence, uh, pay attention to your dreams. Write your dreams down and see if you get any clues there about whether you should take the course or not. Because uh, we'll be taking right. dreams seriously all through the course, and I will be asking people to write their dreams down, uh, and, and we'll talk about them, and we'll see if we can chew on them. Uh, so maybe we'll get a little psychotherapy out of this. Uh, so you're going to get your money's worth, I, I guarantee it. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, one, I know one of the people, I don't want to blow up anyone's spot uh, without their permission, but one of the people who is already enrolled in the course, John, she is a psychotherapist herself, actually. So oh, I think yeah. that that's great. That's super exciting. Yeah. So I think, I think you're going to get a lot of people in this course who are interested in psychology or psychotherapy. Maybe they're practicing psychotherapists or maybe they're aspiring psychotherapists. And I think you're also going to get a lot of people who are kind of interested in art. I think, I think people widely see Jung as, right. as representing a kind of artistic approach to, to, to the psyche and uh, people who are interested in some of these, some of these aspects that that's kind of the vibe that I get. Yeah. That's the other part of his uh, psychotherapy is um, what he calls active imagination, which is uh, drawing. He wants you to draw. Draw things out, draw your feelings out, draw pictures, uh, because he's very good at interpreting pictures and images. Uh, and he wants to see, particularly if you draw a mandala and see if that has a calming effect on you. If you're having, he has this theory that mandalas, when his patients would draw mandalas, which is simply a quadrated image, it can be a circle or it can be a square. The square though, because of the right angularity is a less perfect form than the circle. As Plato says, uh, the soul is in the form of a circle. Um, it's an ancient metaphysical idea that has persisted for a reason uh, because it's round uh, and it therefore has a sort of feminine geometric valency to it. Um, so draw images, uh, work, you, you'll be surprised at what comes out. I've done a lot of that over time as well, drawing uh, images using colored pencils or whatever you want, watercolors or paints uh, and, and do that. And your unconscious then becomes a kind of movie projector that projects these images that are in there that might be troubling you you could be having nightmares or whatever the issue is. And I guarantee you that whatever the problem is will be projected out onto the paper. And in the process of doing that, it is in itself therapeutic. So yes, Young is very much, uh, he appeals very much to artists and artistic types, um, very much so. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. So, right, so John, I mean, do you have any questions for me as someone who hasn't done a course in my course catalog yet? You don't, you don't, you've just kind of got on board. You did all your lectures. You've, you've done all the work of preparing this course, but you might not know exactly what to expect. So, uh, you know, do you have any uh, questions or, or anything that I can explain to you uh, about what to expect for the course? Um, yes, I've done all the lectures. Uh, so those are all pre-recorded, uh, but I'll be interested to see how this works, how when we actually do 
the two-hour discussions on Saturdays, how we get in there and how people interact. Uh, that's what I'm really interested to see, what kind of energy that you've attracted to yourself with this and what kind of yeah. people up. Well, uh, totally. You know, as you mentioned, you've got professionals actually interested in this uh, showing up. Uh, so it'll be a, a really good mix. And I think we'll learn from each other. And I'm very excited to see how this uh, goes. I am also doing, uh, this isn't a plug, I'm just mentioning that I'm also doing classes for the Center for Applied Jungian Research uh, that is located in Cape Town, South Africa. And they are doing a series of courses that I'm participating in also uh, in the springtime, uh, closer to summer, actually, May, April, May, June, right in there. Pretty much after we finish this, uh, we'll be doing a course on film and I'll be giving a presentation there on uh, the semiotics of apocalypse now. And then I myself will be creating an entire course around my book, Art After Metaphysics. And we've got some exciting people, uh, the artist Mark Rautenbach, um, and uh, a documentary filmmaker who specializes in art history will be there giving presentations. So we've got a lot of talent coming in. One guy will, is a pupil of Christian Boltansky, so he's, and he's a Lacanian a psychoanalyst, uh, and he's one of their favorites. Imagine, so you can see how broad-minded they are. Uh, Lacan, I think, uh, is generally hostile to the Jungian approach to, of doing things. Uh, so it says a lot for the, the Institute that they've got a Lacanian psychoanalyst who is a pupil of Christian Boltansky, who always appears in their courses, and he's really fun. You'll you'll love him. Uh, if you that's that's another thing uh, for if you're uh, interested in that. But uh, so th there'll be lots of young stuff going on uh, in my life through most of the year, actually. Um, so awesome! This is very exciting. Everything. Yeah, no, I'm super excited. I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a stellar course. I mean, so far all the courses I've done have been really good, and I'm uh, and it's really cool because each time the student experience is a little bit better because like I said, there's more people in the network and there's more activity in the forum and stuff like that. So, and I get a little bit better at running things each time I, I learn what works best and what doesn't. So um, we got a question here from D Lars or uh, John, are you going to cover the red book in the course? Uh, not that much a bit. Uh, there'll be some references to it, um, but it's not going to be a core chapter, but uh, we can, we can discuss it. Uh, its significance and why Young did it. Uh, it will be embedded in uh, the discussion of what's called in his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, the confrontation with the unconscious, which he went through after the trauma of his breaking from Freud, losing all of his friends, because they all sided with Freud, and going off into the, let's say, mythologically, this is the period in Young's life um, from about 1913 to 1918, 19 or so, right in there, uh, when he descends into the forest on his own. Uh, he stops being uh, creative uh, during this period. It's called the fallow period of Young, where he stops writing texts for the most part, and he creates the Red Book instead uh, as a kind of dream journal combined with his paintings. And so he's putting out paintings at the same time that he's writing down his dreams and uh, really wrestling with trying to understand what the dreams are saying to him, because a lot of them are very unsettling, very nightmarish, and caused him a lot of panic attacks and anxiety. And even as he gets to the end, he says, and this is really fascinating, this somehow caused a haunting in his house. Um, he started getting poltergeist phenomena. Uh, his daughters were complaining of bad dreams, uh, that things had been moved around in their bed during the night. Uh, one of the daughters saw a ghost walk through the kitchen uh, and Young himself watched while the doorbell ringed and he was sitting in a chair and he looked behind and he could see the doorbell being pushed, something pushing it. Uh, and he just felt all these spirits and poltergeists in his house uh, while working on the Red Book. So it's tied intimately with this period of his life. 
where he says he finally made the haunting go away when he wrote the text that's in that book called The Seven Sermons to the Dead, because he thought the dead were pressing on him uh, to do this. And so what I love about that autobiography, by the way, is this: that's Young Unchained. That's where he reveals all of his experiences with the paranormal that he keeps out of his professional papers because he doesn't want, he really wants to earn the respect of the scientific community as a respectable scientist. So he doesn't ever talk about this stuff in his professional publications, but in personal conversations with patients and people who interviewed him, he just lets loose. And uh, he tells one fantastic story after the next. There is, if I may be allowed for one more second, sure. there is a story also in that book that is absolutely fascinating when he goes on a tour to Ravenna. So he goes to Ravenna to look at all the uh, mosaics that they have there of Christian iconotypes and images. And then he goes into one of these uh, churches and he's looking at um, all this water imagery of a woman, I forget what the saint was, uh, who was connected with drowning and water. Um, and he went out and a woman was with him uh, as a guide going through this. And he went out, then went out, uh, they left. And then he said, you know what, I should investigate to see if they have any images in the lobby of what I saw in those walls. Um, and they go back there and the church isn't there. It's just not there. And she was like, are you, this is, was the spot where the church was. It's not there. And they went in and they talked to someone who said, yes, I've seen those mosaics, but that church burned down a very long time ago. Uh, so I don't know what you, what, what happened. And Young doesn't even bother to give an explanation, but that is an absolutely fascinating account. <laughs> went into a ghost church. I have no comment to say just other than that's wow. cool. That's, that stuff's cool. Fascinating. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very strange. Very strange. Now, there's a question in the chat. Someone asking, are live discussions recorded and posted in the, the seminar groups that we do for the, for the course? And the answer to that is every weekly seminar, it's two hours long and it is private, but they are recorded and they are put into an archive for participants in the course. So what this means is that if you're a member of the course, then you can watch the replay at your convenience and you can see the archive and go back over things if you ever want to, but you have to be in the course to access it. So it's, it's semi, it's recorded. Yes, but not for the public. It's just for the course community. And something I might add there is that the, the course community, people who take the course are more or less in the course for life in that they're going to get future updates. They're going to get access to, to the future network of other people who come into the course later. So if you enroll in the course now, you're going to participate in this eight-week cohort, but then you're going to be in the community. You're going to have access to the course content for life. So if we update the course or we add things later, you're going to stay in the loop on that. And if there are future cohorts that meet for the seminar discussions, you're also going to be able to see those see those happening also. So yeah, so it's it's a, it's a long-term thing that kind of accumulates really. It's it's building a longer-term community and a kind of course archive of, of content basically. Yeah. So we are coming up on an hour here, John. Um, yeah. If you wanted to get any other ideas or topics on the agenda, you're more than welcome to. But I mean, I, this was, I think, covered most of the bases that I wanted to. I just wanted basically people to know the course is now open for enrollment. If they have any questions, they can hit me up anytime. I'm happy to take emails. I'm, I, I, I reply to everything. So um, you can get the reading list if you just want to see what the syllabus is. You can download that at the website, which is listed on screen or in the show notes below. And um, yeah, you're, you're happy, you're, you're more than welcome to enroll now. We have a kind of onboarding process. So when you enroll, you, you'll get a, a, a personal communication from me and, I'll, and, and then an email that kind of walks you through things. You'll get immediate access to the course content. And then you also get access to the, to the network that we have with people like John and Nina Power and Michael Millerman and me and a bunch of other 
bloggers, podcasters, YouTubers, and uh, some academics and and people, you know, like that. Uh, so yeah, if anyone has any questions, they can let me know. But otherwise, we hope to see some of you enroll. And if you have any questions and you're still on the fence, just come to our Q&A on Thursday. There's also a link to that in the show notes. It's free. You can just come meet us and, and kind of that'll give you a sense of the vibe of what to expect in, in the private uh, discussion seminars that we do each week for the course. John? All I have to say to sum up is um, if you do uh, sign up and enroll, uh, get ready for a very profound, very intense, very in-depth series of discussions because I have a feeling we'll be discussing things uh, through this process, uh, the paranormal and dreams and uh, synchronicities and all these kinds of things that very often uh, in the Jungian world is not discussed or is kept hidden or is in the closet and they just stick with the archetype theory and mythology. Um, this will be very in-depth and we'll be sharing and trading personal experiences and dreams and uh, accounts of the paranormal and so forth. And we'll, it'll be very deep, intense and thorough. Uh, we'll have a lot of fun. I guarantee you. And I basically give, I give the lecturers complete discretion, uh, to do what they want. So, you know, I, I provide a system, a format, uh, and some infrastructure, but as to how things are run or the topics discussed and what goes on, that's completely up to the lecturer. I, I support kind of genuine, complete academic freedom in that regard. And so John will be the guide and I'll just be providing the the systems and the infrastructure and, and the logistics basically. So, um, yeah, th th I think the, the only other thing that I wanted to add was that we, yeah, there are links in the show notes and also there was something else I wanted to add, but I think I pretty much covered all the bases. I'm, I'm sure basically just, if you have any questions or you're not sure, just come to the Q and a, that way you can ask us directly. Uh, there might've been one or two other things I wanted to share, but there's lots of details and um, I'm happy to just do, answer questions on a, on a case by case basis. Uh, the Q and A is on Thursday at uh, what time zone? Is it uh, 3 PM? My time. If, you just, if people just go to the link, it'll, it should do time zones automatically. So it'll display yep. it in your time zone. Right. So um, yeah, basically if anyone has any questions, let me know, but we hope to see some of you there. And Oh, that's what I wanted to say before we wrap it up. The final thing is just that, you know, it's a lot of reading. It's not, it's intense. It's not, this is not a walk in the park. Like this is not, right. This is not some kind of flimsy, easygoing type of thing where you just show up to an informal Zoom call once a week. No, it's the the readings are difficult and intense, and it's going to be an eight week challenge. It's an it's a challenging, intensive eight week process. You're going to be challenged in the readings. You're going to be challenged in the discussions, and you're going to come out the other side. Uh, hopefully, you know a, a significantly transformed person. I don't want to over overstate it, but you know any any intensive educational experience should be on some basic sense you know, truly transformative. So it's going to be hard and it's going to, it's going to be demanding and um, it's going to really test you and challenge you in, in your, your, your discipline and your, your, your reading effort and, and your kind of critical thinking and speaking abilities. Uh, but it's also going to be friendly and intimate and, and all, you know, supportive too. So that's what, that's the vibe that we try to create. So just for people who are curious, you know, um, if you're not sure, or you're, you know, if you're looking for something kind of easy or lightweight, it's probably not the, it's, this is probably not a good option for you. This is for people who really have been meaning to study Jung or, or for whatever reason, really want to get a significantly enhanced grasp on Carl Jung and really, you know, significantly extend their knowledge and comprehension of, of his work and its meaning and its significance and significantly integrated into their own life or their own, you know, artistic practice or philosophical practice or psychological work or, or psychotherapy work, whatever the case might be. So yeah, that's just something I wanted to say at the, at the very end is it's, it's, it's not, it's, is not a cakewalk. And if you want something kind of lighthearted and just easy, then this won't be worth the money for you. But if you want something that's going to really force you 
to finally tackle Young in a serious and professional way and significantly kind of integrate his ideas into your own mental models, then this is this is this is worth the money, I believe, and I, I wouldn't be offering if it wasn't. So that's what it's all about. It's going to be intense, and I'm super excited. I cannot wait. This is, just hearing you talk about it is getting me excited. It's Absolutely, <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for jumping on here, John. I'm happy to share with the world that it's now open. It's it's now open for enrollment. So yeah, we look forward to meeting uh, hopefully a good handful of you who are interested in going deeper on this. So yeah, just go to the links in the show notes and or send me an email or hit me up on twitter or whatever is easiest for you and i'm happy to answer any questions about how things work john thanks again for doing this with me and i'm looking forward to it i do too we'll see you there all right take it easy john and take it easy everyone out there you can if you want to uh subscribe to the youtube channel and click the little bell so you get notifications next time i go live all right thanks everybody see you later hey everybody thanks for listening if you like this episode, you should send it to a friend. Just email it to them or post it on your social networks, whatever. And to learn more about what we discussed in this podcast or to send me questions to address in future episodes, please just go to otherlife.co and you'll find everything there. There's actually a ton of cool stuff on there. So check it out if you haven't already. Thanks again, folks. I'll see you here next time.